Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My, desk, my guest today is Pamela Foey, Associate Professor of Law at the Indiana University Bloomington Maurer School of Law. We will discuss her paper, Life in the Sweatbox, which she co-authored with Robert Lawless, Congresswoman-elect Catherine Porter, and Deborah Thorne, and which will appear in the Notre Dame Law Review. So welcome, Pamela. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss bankruptcy and people's finances, however odd that might sound. <laughs> well, I got to say, I mean, I am too. I have a passing interest in bankruptcy, having written on it a little bit myself. And it's obviously a really important, salient issue uh, right now and one that people have been talking about, one that, you know, Senator Warren has been talking about and, and many mm-hmm many other people. So I was wondering if you could, if you could start uh, with the wonderfully evocative, but maybe for non-bankruptcy specialists, a little, um, a little confusing title um, or like one they wouldn't immediately understand what you're talking about. So when you say welcome to the life in the sweat box, what is the sweat box and how does that relate to bankruptcy law? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Um, so I love the title. Um, the title is a reference to the time before someone files for bankruptcy, which is generally known as the financial sweatbox. Um, and the financial sweatbox refers to um, the time in which people are in default on their obligations, such as credit cards, or they're not paying in full and lenders can assess fees and high interest and thereby add to their debt and sort of make them sweat it out as they try and try and try to pay off um, their ever-increasing debts. The link to bankruptcy um, is that the longer people struggle because of the sweatbox, the more likely it is for their debts to increase um, and to increase to a point in which they have no hope of ever being able to pay them back, and then people end up turning to bankruptcy. In terms of bankruptcy also, um, the, the term financial sweatbox was linked very much with debates leading up to the passage of 2005 amendments to the bankruptcy code, which generally known are known as BAPSIPA. Um, and the sweatbox was around long before the amendments, um, and continues today, but the rhetoric around it really shaped what we view of how we view the financial sweatbox um, and also how we view people who file bankruptcy. And so the idea was that people in favor of the amendments, would, which made them harder to file bankruptcy and also more expensive to file bankruptcy, was that there were a whole lot of can-pay debtors out there abusing the bankruptcy system by filing bankruptcies of convenience in the face of a decline in bankruptcy's stigma. Every claim was contradicted by evidence. Um, Expert consensus was that the bankruptcy system functioned well, abuse was rare, and there was no need for an overhaul of the system. And instead others said the true goal of BAPSIPA was to make people stay in the sweatbox longer and thereby lenders could get a little more money out of them before they turned to bankruptcy. Um, and our paper talks about you know, what is the sweatbox? Um, what does it look like to live in the sweatbox? And how does people's lives in the sweatbox correspond 
to those narratives about who files bankruptcy that really impacted the 2005 amendments. Right. So your, your paper really, at least my reading of it, was that it primarily kind of focuses on kind of more recent developments in bankruptcy law, specifically these recent changes and sort of policy debates that happened around whether or not those changes were a good idea. And also kind of your findings on sort of who was right <laughs> in a sense. Um, but I was wondering if, if you could provide a little bit of additional, just brief historical context as to sort of what exactly changed and to the extent that there was this kind of sweatbox phenomenon before these changes to bankruptcy law, was it different? And if so, how was it different before and after the changes? So uh, I think there, there's two important points about this. Um, the, the 2005 amendments did change bankruptcy significantly by making people fill out basically more paperwork, including their attorneys. Uh, it didn't really change who files bankruptcy. The people who file bankruptcy still look like middle-class people, uh, but it made it more expensive and time-consuming to file and thereby push people to not file for a while and thereby stick it out in the sweatbox even longer. Um, and a couple of my co-authors, along with now um, Senator Warren, have a paper if, coming out that came out in 2007 um, about how long people struggled before the 2005 amendments and after the 2005 amendments. And they found that, that people um, increased the time they spent struggling before they filed bankruptcy in the sweatbox uh, around the time of the 2005 amendments. Our paper references the increase in struggling between or around the time of the 2005 amendments, but it focuses on the fact that we, all, we find that people are struggling even longer than they did a couple years after the amendments took effect. Um, and we ask and, and posit as to why people are spending a longer time um, struggling with their debt. And if you would like, I'd be happy to, to discuss the methodology um, before we get deeper into anything. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I was wondering if, if maybe before talking about the methodology, which I think is really important, mm -hmm. and, I, and I really definitely do want to hear a lot more about, can, can you say something about kind of the policy considerations about it and kind of how it happened? Was it like an intentional, like, was it part of the plan for people to sweat it out for longer? Was it an accident? Like, it clearly sounds like it's really bad for people who are in debt and should be filing bankruptcy, but are delaying for one reason or another. Are there people who benefit and did they want this to happen? I assume you're talking about the 2005. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so there was a group of people who were strongly in favor of the amendments. Um, and, and they said that people were turning to bankruptcy too quickly right, when they probably could pay their debts and they were using bankruptcy really to just get rid of debt that came from overspending. It was sort of camp one. Uh, camp two said, you know, camp one is incorrect. Um, we have data and the people who filed bankruptcy filed because they had uh, medical problems, they lost their jobs, their families split up, 
Um, they've been trying to pay their debts, but they simply cannot. Um, and they're not filing because they, they simply want to get rid of their debts. The idea of the sweat box was something that was sitting in the background um, and the proponents of the amendments never said, we want people to pay more um, by making it harder to file for bankruptcy. But it seems that that was the outcome of the amendments and potentially work back and think that some of the creditors who were pushing for the amendments that made it harder to file and more expensive to file in the back of their minds were thinking about um, how much money they might collect from people if they just postponed filing a little longer. Right, right. So I, I guess my question is, do you feel like it's like a feature or a bug of the changes in the law? So I, I think um, depending on who you talk to, it's both a feature <laughs> and a bug, right? <laughs> Our paper, my paper with my co-authors definitely say uh, it's not a good thing mm. that people are spending more time struggling before they file bankruptcy for a whole host of reasons, um, many of which are related to what bankruptcy is intended to give people mm. to help them get back on their feet. Um, I, and then I think others would say it, it truly was a feature of the amendments. The idea was to make people pay as much as they could to their creditors before they filed for bankruptcy or considered filing for bankruptcy. And if people are waiting longer, well, that's what was intended. Right. Okay. Well, thanks. That, that was actually really interesting. And, and maybe now you could talk a little bit about the methodology of the project, because I got to say, I mean, the amount of, of work you all put into gathering data and crunching it was really impressive. And I'd love for you to share with people what you did and sort of what you found. Thank you. So, um, we, we primarily rely in this paper on data from the Consumer Bankruptcy Project, which is a long-term project that studies the people who file bankruptcy. Uh, the current iteration that we're working on includes people who filed during 2013 through 2016. And what we do now is every three months, we randomly select about two, or 200 consumer bankruptcy cases both chapter seven and chapter 13 for those who are more aware of the chapters. And then we send a written questionnaire to debtors to add to the data that we can get from the bankruptcy court records. Uh, and the paper that uh, I'm talking about, the sweatbox paper relies on those four years of data. So we have 3,200 households who filed bankruptcy and then 910 questionnaires, which were returned to us, which is a pretty good, a very good response rate for a questionnaire of this sort. Then right. um, the Consumer Bankruptcy Project right, is a long-term project, so there's previous iterations. Um, the one that we compare to the most in the paper is 2007, which was a snapshot of, in time of cases, about 2,500 that were filed in January to April of 2007. And in that iteration, again, the questionnaire was sent to debtors. So we're able to compare across iterations. Yeah, very cool. So what kind of like, I mean, reading the paper, I got the impression that there were some like, interesting, both demographic findings in terms of who was filing and who was filing in what way, mm -hmm. but, but also some really interesting findings about why people were choosing to delay to file? 
Yeah, so um, in the paper, we, we, sort of, we break the paper down into first discussing about how long people are spending in the sweat box, how long they're struggling with their debts. And then we end up comparing um, two different groups to see how people are struggling um, differently based on how long they struggle. Right, so, so first, we, we ask people, how long did you seriously struggle with your debts before you filed bankruptcy? And we give them preset categories of time. Um, and what is striking about our data is that in the current consumer bankruptcy project, so now, two-thirds of the respondents said they struggled for more than two years prior to filing, and almost one-third said that they struggled for more than five years. And this is double the frequency in 2007. And on average, people waited 10 months longer um, to file bankruptcy than in 2007. Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, who is struggling, there's actually um, very little difference in terms of uh, demographic, financial, and other changes in the people who file bankruptcy. But it's the people who struggle for two plus years who are different than the other than the under two year group. So in the paper, we call the people who struggle for more than two years long strugglers, and then we compare them to all of the other debtors. Um, and what we find is that the people who struggle longer uh, are more likely um, to both enter bankruptcy with a whole lot more debt while they own less in assets such as homes. Um, and they're also more likely to arrive in bankruptcy court with a, an involuntary lien against their home, meaning that someone, just a taxing entity, uh, slapped a lien on their house. And they're also much more likely to have a creditor initiate an actual debt collection action against them in state court prior to filing, um, which is one of the ways in which they differ. They also differ a lot in uh, what they do, the lengths they go to to try to pay their debts before they file bankruptcy. Uh, people who struggle longer are more likely to sell their home, to pawn their property, which links up to their finances when they file bankruptcy. They try to get a job. Um, they try to work with their creditors. Uh, and they also are more likely to go without items that are what I would say key to their life, such as medical attention, healthcare, dental care, prescriptions, food, and utilities. And that's really what struck me in the data. Yeah. And one thing that, that I had no idea and really kind of gives the lie in some ways to this previous narrative you're describing is that it, at least from the data you collected, it looked like it would just be impossible for most of these people to ever conceivably pay back their debts. I, I think that is a very correct characterization. Um, and the, the finances of the people in, in the paper who are clearly over-indebted um, so much that they just, they're never going to get out from under the debt is not unique to the current um, consumer bankruptcy project debtors. The financial results are consistent across iterations. So there's more or less the same in 2007. They were somewhat similar or similar in 2001. They were like that in 1999, right, in 1991. 
And so when uh, the amendments to the code were being discussed, it, uh, a bunch of academics came forth and said, the data does not relate to your story. It, in fact, contradicts your story. And they were, I say, sort of ignored in the end. Yeah. What I was wondering if you could, if you could maybe talk about that, maybe even, dare I say, like speculate <laughs> about some of those findings a little bit, because I couldn't help but ask myself, sort of, what do you, what do you do from a policy standpoint with this information? Because it seems to me like a lot of the sort of ex-ante theoretical uh, assumptions were that people were going to kind of act broadly speaking as sort of economically rational ways. And it yeah. really seems like the data that you present in the paper is not, let, let's say, not entirely consistent with kind of rational economic decision-making. Um, and I don't know, like, what do you do with that? Yeah. So it's hard to ask an empirical scholar to speculate, um, but I will, <laughs> right? Because, you know, I, I, it's not even speculation, I, in my view, uh, that the people who file bankruptcy are not acting in economically rational ways. Um, the responses to our questionnaire show that they are not doing so. Right? These people should have filed a long time before they did, right? before 60% of people who are long strugglers went without medical attention while they were trying to pay their debts, right? before they gave up food and utilities right? before um, they, they uh, did other things that in the end became detrimental to their finances. Um, so I'm, I'm completely with you that they're not economically rational. And that's actually one of the big takeaways of this paper. Because although we're talking now about people not um, being economically rational who filed bankruptcy, I think the popular narrative still is that people, quote, abuse the bankruptcy system. Mm. And narratives about when and why people are filing bankruptcy influence not only the legislative details of the code, right, which got us to the 2005 amendments, but then they can impact how judges rule in individual cases when they're looking at a debtor. They could um, influence how attorneys interact with their clients. And on the back end, they could also influence consumer laws more generally, generally consumer financial laws. And so the paper at its core is really unapologetically descriptive for this reason. Mm -hmm. um, and it's meant to attack these narratives and say, there was evidence that uh, the narratives were wrong in 2005 and before 2005, and they're still wrong today, right? And they're even more wrong because people are struggling longer now and it's not productive um, for them or even for the bankruptcy system. Yeah, well, that, and, that, and that was something I kind of wondered about too. Like, is there anyone who really wants this to be happening? Because it seems like hugely wasteful of resources, both economic and emotional, not just for the debtors, but in a way, and it's like, it, that, this can't be, like, are, do, do, do creditors want this? I don't understand. Um, I'm, I'm not sure on the creditor end, uh, if 
you asked me to speculate. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go there. Yeah. I think it, from a creditor's perspective, every extra dollar that that creditor can squeeze out of a debtor, um, it makes sense for them to squeeze it out of the debtor up to a point. Mm. Right? And there's a point at which creditors should want that that debtor who's not paying much, paying minimally, they're not ma- making much money off of them anymore to give up to file bankruptcy it, to get a financial reset so they can start the cycle again. Mm. And our paper can't speak to whether creditors think that the 2005 amendments and how people are using the bankruptcy system now and also defaulting just generally on their debts now strikes the balance that creditors want. Um, but you know, I, I think there's, there's a balance with the sweatbox that was probably actively sought. Yeah. I mean, I guess I couldn't help but think that like more, I guess, I don't know, responsible creditors, I guess I would say, or sort of more traditional, but perhaps more traditional <laughs> creditors. It would, it would seem would want people to enter the bankruptcy system sooner so that they still had like some assets left over that could be distributed rather than be so far in the hold and that there's, there's just nothing left and they don't get anything back at the end of the day. You would think that. Um, I think a confounding factor here um, is, is something we also raise in the paper and that is the advent and really the growth of the debt collection and debt buying industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we talk about how many of the people who struggled the longest uh, say they ended up filing bankruptcy because of pressure from their debt collectors. And we don't ask them who was who collecting the debt, but based on the debt buying market, those debt collectors, a lot of them probably were companies that purchased debt from the original creditor. And so the original creditor also already has recovered what it thinks is going to recover from the debt. It's ran off the rest and it's moved on to the next mm. person. And now there's this industry out there whose sole income source is to collect the money from people. Right? And they're not as worried about when those people file bankruptcy because all they want is more debt to collect from other people. And mm. they're willing to push them to struggle longer and longer until they sort of snap and file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So, okay, one of the other things I noticed that was in your paper that that seemed inter- interesting to me were some of these demographic issues about, you know, not just who's filing bankruptcy, but who's filing bankruptcy when. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like who's using the bankruptcy system relatively effectively and who's using it relatively less effectively so as as far as we can tell and i think this is what you're getting at is people who wait um longer to file bankruptcy don't use the bankruptcy system as effectively Um, because what bankruptcy is meant to give people is a fresh start and prior research done um, by two of my co-authors, Deb Thorne and Congresswoman-elect Porter, have shown that going into bankruptcy and then coming out of bankruptcy with a cushion of assets 
and income um, is key to sustain financial health. Right? So the people who seem to do well on the back end of bankruptcy have some stuff when they come in. And so the people who struggle the longest end up depleting all their assets. And when they file bankruptcy, um, the effectiveness of the system is, is not what the code thinks it's going to be or what they're potentially expecting. Um, and in the paper, we use a metaphor of a really, really deep hole. And along with the idea of this is descriptive, what our findings about how long people struggle show is that if, if financial distress is a hole, that hole is way deeper than previously thought. And so if bankruptcy is a ladder out of that hole, it, the ladder is relatively shorter than thought that than was thought so that when people get on the ladder they actually can't ascend to level financial ground and instead they're sort of peeking up out of the hole and struggling to get out despite the fact that they filed bankruptcy and on you know, an economic basis that's just not a practical outcome of people's use of the bankruptcy system yeah well what was i reading your paper correct to un to understand that it looked to me like it suggested that in some cases like higher income or higher asset people actually filed bankruptcy quicker than relatively low income and low asset people which seems strange so in terms of the of people's finances yeah um yeah, so I think that goes with the financial depletion of the sweatbox. Uh, and it's unclear whether the people who struggle longer were high asset to begin with, and they've simply sold their assets uh, okay. because they've had three or more extra years to deplete everything, or that there's certain people um, who, who struggle or likely to struggle for less time because of the assets they own. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure we can draw much uh, more of a conclusion from the data. Okay. Okay. okay, okay. Well, so given the findings in the paper and given like a sort of, I guess, a reasonable assumption of what we think the personal bankruptcy system mm -hmm. can and should do, like, how, from a policymaker's perspective, should this affect how we think about the structure of structure of and sort of like incentives within the bankruptcy system? Yeah, so that's sort of the question at the end of the paper. What do you do with this description? Um, and, and what we write in the paper is that we first think that updating the narratives are sim is simply important um, because then the public debate can shift about who files bankruptcy and when. In terms of the bankruptcy system, um, if there were um, new ideas in place or changes that made it easier for people to file, it, then... Uh, once people understood that bankruptcy was a tool they could use, mm. the actual entry to the system would be less cumbersome. And that might help save some of their finances that, and money that they could then use to truly take advantage of their fresh start. 
I also think it's important um, to update the narratives because of what judges can do in, in bankruptcy cases now. And my current go-to example is, is student loans. And there's bankruptcy judges who are now um, interpreting the code's provisions to allow for the discharge of some student loans in some circumstances when in the past um, they would not, judges would not have gone down that statutory interpretation route. And I, and I think that popular narratives and how we discuss the people who file bankruptcy really matter um, to how judges then think about the debtors in front of them. Yeah. So I mean, I guess in, in closing, like how, how would you weigh some of those issues or those potential sort of changes against each other. I mean, because from the narrative perspective, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that the stories that judges and policymakers tell themselves Mm -hmm. are, are driving policymaking and judicial decision-making. But it also seems like in the paper, you're talking about the stories that debtors are telling themselves as well, also affecting as it were, their decision yes. whether and when to file for bankruptcy. And do you see that or the sort of relative expense and difficulty of the kind of bureaucracy of the system itself as being bigger impediments toward timely filing? Or are they just, you know, two equally important factors? I think they're they're two equally important factors and also two factors that are tied together and in a way that they cannot be disentangled Uh, because the popular narratives about what bankruptcy is about influences how people even think about their financial issues at the outset. And so in the paper, we, we talk about people realizing that bankruptcy is a tool they can use. And we link that realization to debt collection, where a debt collector calls you and tells you, or I'm going to file suit against you, or you're actually dragged into state court on a debt collection case. And at that point, a family might realize that their financial issues truly are legal issues and that bankruptcy might be something to turn to. Mm. But when they realize bankruptcy might be something to turn to, they then realize that it's exceedingly expensive. It's this huge bureaucracy. There's a lot. There's still a lot of stigma around it, um, and and so decreasing the stigma, um, decreasing the view, the stigma, the um, the view that people who file bankruptcy are immoral or they're doing something wrong, would then allow people to really consider it as an option. Right? And I think that in turn would also put bankruptcy at the forefront of their minds even sooner while they're thinking through their financial issues. And it sort of all comes full circle. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it always has struck me as odd that like no one thinks, or at least my impression is that no one thinks of, of business bankruptcy or of corporate bankruptcy as being you know associated with any kind of you know, particular stigma. But but it seems that it really does affect how people think about personal bankruptcy in a very yeah. different way. And not for any obviously good kind of sensible economic reason. 
No, I, I completely agree. In fact, I think it's an historical reason. Um, Bruce Mann, who's a professor at Harvard um, Law School, has a wonderful book about uh, called The Republic of Debtors, about the origins and beginnings of bankruptcy laws in this country and how business debt was viewed as something necessary and economically productive. And of course, some businessmen, because it was all men at that time, right, are going to fail. So there has to be a system to take care of that. Whereas personal debt was viewed as immoral, you should never actually have it. And so if you couldn't pay back your immoral debts, you shouldn't file bankruptcy because you shouldn't have taken it out to begin with. And those two views of the appropriateness of debt have really influenced um, both the bankruptcy code over time and how different types of debtors are viewed. Wow. Well, Pam, thank, thank, thank you so much. This has been a really informative and an enlightening conversation. Thank you. It's been a, a great uh, conversation. guest this evening became direct distributors in August of 1959, Amway's first year in business. They have attended all five Rama trips from the Bahama Rama to the Hawaiian Luau. They personally sponsor nine direct distributors from Savannah, Illinois. Let's all welcome Diamond Direct Distributors, Vince and Alice Gaffey. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here tonight and to tell you people some of the things that we enjoy with our Amway business. One of the things that we really enjoy are the meetings that we attend. Because from these meetings, you know, we learn. And we, this is the way with, that we keep motivated. And we people that have been in Amway for some time, we need this just as much as a new distributor that is just starting. <laughs> 